Welcome to the teaching ministry of Temple Baptist Church. While we hope you can join us in person, our prayer is that this message will encourage you to love God and serve Him in a deeper way. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. If this is your first time uh, here with us, my name is Donald, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And also want to give a shout out to those who are watching us online this morning. Thank you for inviting us into your space. And we hope one day that you'll come and join us right here. And we promise to make uh, you feel right at home. We'll do our very best with that. Well, I don't know about anybody else, but I have found this week, um, what shall I say? I I felt like I was deceived this week. Monday, the sun was shining. It was beautiful. I thought, oh, spring spring has sprung. And then Tuesday, I got my park out. And then I thought I was sure snow was on its way. And then a little glimmer of hope by the end of the week. And then uh, yesterday, cold. I thought I was back in Nova Scotia. Rain, damp, cold. So I've actually prayed every day, dear Lord, please, I beg of you, send spring permanently. So uh, it looks like it may happen this week, actually. So um, I also wanted to, I noticed Marilyn Glad who's with us, our MP, thank you very much for joining us here this weekend. Thank you so much for serving us and our community. We, uh, we really appreciate that. Well, for those who are joining us for the first time, we've actually been on a journey Uh, together for the last five weeks. We've been in this journey on a series called Done. Basically, we're studying what Jesus said when he was on the cross, when he finally said, it is finished. It is done. And we've been trying to figure out what, what was Jesus referring to? I mean, there were some of those last words that he said. It is finished. He said it when he was on the cross. Family, friends, enemies, soldiers were all around him. When he said, it is finished, just before he said to the Father, Father, I'm I'm giving my spirit back to you. Just before that, he says, it is finished. It's three English words. But in the Greek, the original, it's actually just one word. Patelestai. It was a very common word in its day. Uh, When I say Greek, it was like... um, Koinonia, Koinonia Greek, like the common language of the people. So when Jesus says to tell us, everybody knew what he meant. Like he knew the phrase. People were very familiar with it. It was such a common word in this period of time. It meant a completion of a transaction. It means that whatever was agreed upon, it had been fully and finally completed. In, in days of merchants, it meant that it had been paid in full. So to telestai was a happy word. It was like, it is done, it is finished. We know what it is when we finish something and how happy it can be. When we finish a renovation, we're like, oh my goodness, it's done, right? We finish our term paper, we're like, oh, it's finally done. The last exam, it's done. The last payment on the car, finally, it's done. For some of you, you know the joy of making your last payment on your house. And it's such a euphoria feeling. Well, when this word was used in its day, the same response would come. So when Jesus says to tell us that it is finished, it is done, he was speaking volumes about a task that had successfully and completely been completed. It was done. So with that comes the question, well, what was done? Like what was finished? What was he referring to? Because notice Jesus didn't say, I am finished. 
No, in fact, he was just getting started as to what he was doing. See, the cross is more than just a, a great example of sacrifice. It's, it's far more than just a statement of what a great leader does to move his cause forward. Oh, no, no, it's far more than that. See, when Jesus said it is finished, he had come and he had finally completed what he, what he came to do. So why did he say it's finished? Because up until that point, it wasn't finished. Up until that point, people actually were still trying to make payments on the debt that they owed. That debt of sin. You see, entire systems were built around paying off a debt. You know, sacrifices of bulls and lambs and sheep and goats and turtle doves all making payment. But all it ever did was actually delay the foreclosure. So when Jesus came, he said, no, no, no. The payment has been made. It's done. It's finished. And that event that took place nearly 2,000 years ago is no fairy tale. It is an event that literally changed the course of all humanity. And the crucifixion and the resurrection will be told and retold and told again. And if the Lord should not return for another 1,000 years, people will still write songs about it. Preachers will still proclaim it behind the pulpit. People will still share to the world about the grace of God. It really is. It is the greatest event in all of history. And there have been some great events in history. I mean, all you have to do is open up your history book and you can see some great events. Some people might say, you know, when the printing press was invented, that was a great day because it changed everything. And in many ways, it really did. For the first time, people could actually have a copy of God's Word for themselves. Up in that point, there were very few copies and oftentimes it would be chained to the pulpit of a church. And so no doubt when the printing press, that was a great day in history. Or when electricity was discovered. I mean, how much easier our lives are now because of it. Or when the telephone was invented. I mean, the fact that it changed communication was incredible. The day that Canada declared themselves a sovereign nation, that was a great day in history. It was a great day in history when after we had sent men and women over to defend our freedom, they came back victorious. That was a great day in history, but none can compare to that day when Jesus says it is finished, it is done. It really was. Because for the first time, mankind could have hope. For the first time, everything was done that for our sins to be forgiven. Everything was done for us to be in a relationship with God. Everything was actually accomplished on that day for us to have hope. Everything was done for us to experience the mercy of God. Everything was done for us to know and experience the grace of God. Now, after Christ had done this, and after the disciples and the apostles were out and they were proclaiming this amazing grace of God, I don't know what happened, but somewhere along the line, the church reverted back. You study church history, kind of reverted back to the old ways. There was a very dark season for the church because they had gone back to actually now making people pay for their forgiveness of sins. Paying for the experience, the grace and mercy of God. It was called indulgences. And the church began to go back to that. And I was like, why would you do that when, when we can know and experience the grace of God? But for hundreds of years, the church had fallen down and it had engulfed all of Christianity. And then about 500 years ago, a man, a monk, 
in Martin Luther in 1517. Studying God's word, rediscovered again. Oh my goodness. The grace of God cannot be paid for. It cannot be worked for. It cannot be earned. It is a free gift of God. And on October 31st, he took his thesis and nailed it to the Wittenberg Castle Church doors. And of course, at that point, he was excommunicated for preaching what the Bible said about the grace of God. His actions began the Protestant Reformation, which we are the recipients of that today. We are the beneficiaries because of that move that he made in 1517. You know, when a person um, wins a trophy because they won a sporting event, when, when a person um, gets an award because of an achievement, when a person gets a paycheck for the work they've done, we go, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. But what happens when someone gets a paycheck for the work they didn't do? Or they get a trophy for the win that they actually didn't do, or win the game. Or they, they get an award for an achievement that they didn't accomplish. It's called unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. And at the heart of grace, that's what it is. Unmerited favor. Grace, uh, grace is defined as the goodness of God given to someone who never deserved it, could never earn it, could never pay for it. It's God's un, he gives us this undeserving grace, this undeserving favor unto mankind. And when we, and because of that rediscovery of grace that led to the Reformation, so many people finally could understand what biblical salvation was. Grace alone. Solo gracia. Grace alone for reconciliation with God. But God who was rich in mercy and in great love, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. And if you've experienced the grace of God, but you don't extend the grace of God, I'm not too sure we understand what grace really is. Because when you understand, when we understand that God has lavishly poured his love upon us, it's almost unimaginable that we would not do the same for others. How cruel it would be, how unkind it would be not to extend grace to others after what God has done for us. Because when we were at our worst, that's when Christ died for us. So I have this, this question in my mind. And the question is, how do people see? Like, how do people see when our lives have been transformed by the grace of God? How does it, how do we make grace Visible. In fact, this week in staff meeting, at the beginning part of our staff meeting, we were talking about grace, and we looked in Romans where it says we are to excel in grace. And I've been, th and I've been thinking about that all week. How do we excel in grace? Well, I think maybe the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today may give us some helpful 
hints as to how we can excel. As Christians, as followers of Christ, for those of us who have committed our lives to Christ, who are to excel, I think we can find maybe some helpful ideas that can maybe help us this week. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you bring your Bibles, because I really want you to know, this is just not me speaking, we're, we're looking at God's word, you can read it for yourself. So I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, bring your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give one to you before you leave here today. We have given out tons and tons of Bibles for those who don't own one. Of course, if you have some kind of electronic device, you can follow along as well. Turn to the book of Isaiah. Now, the Bible is fairly new to you. I mean, Isaiah, you can always go in the front of your Bible where there's a table of contents that tells you what page number. But if you open your Bible right in the middle, it probably will open to the book of Psalms. Well, take a sharp right, and you'll go to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, bang, Isaiah. There you go, Isaiah. We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 58 this morning. Isaiah 58. And as you're turning there, I just want to let you know that Isaiah was a prophet of God, was a prophet called by God to go and preach his guts out. And God says, and the people won't respond. Can you imagine? That was his call in life. You go and you preach and you tell them, but they're not going to respond. I just thought to myself, I can't imagine doing that. That would be like telling a mechanic, you work on that car for the rest of your life, but you'll never fix it. Why would you do it? And yet, that's the call of Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 58, if you're there, we're going to pick it up right from verse 1. It says, Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet. Oh my goodness, okay, this is going to be a serious sermon that Isaiah is supposed to give. He says, God says, declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sin. Oh dear. This is like a sermon that you're going to have to buckle up. This is serious stuff. This, this sermon is the kind of sermon you want to be away at the cottage for the weekend, right? It kind of sounds like what he's talking. I mean, he's pointing out, he's going to point out people's sin. Yikes. Well, let's can, uh, continue reading. It says, for day after day they seek me out. Well, that sounds pretty good to me. Then it says, they seem eager to know my ways, as if they were in a, a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask for me. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit, exploit all your workers. This passage of scripture, when you first read it, seems like there's this uh, frenzy of religious activity, and what we're discovering, it does not equate with someone who has experienced the grace of God. So you cannot spot a child of God simply by their religious activities alone. Religious activity that is done to earn God's favor is actually worth this. Because you cannot purchase what has been freely given to you. For by grace you are saved, through faith, not of yourself. Why? So you don't go around boasting what you've done. And so religious activity cannot in itself grant the favor of God. It's given through God's son, Jesus. And on that cross, when he died and rose again and conquered death and made the payment for the penalty of our sin and death. That's why you can come to a baptism service 
if you've ever been to one, we, people share their testimony. And that's why you can hear in those testimonies people say, I grew up in a home where we went to church every week. I grew up in a home where we, we respected the Bible and we read the Bible. You know, uh, my whole life was around church. And they say, but it wasn't until just recently that I finally understood what the grace of God really is. And even though they were involved in Christian stuff, they weren't actively involved in a relationship with Jesus. See, if our conversation about Christ is all about the do's and our conversation does not deal with relationship, then we miss out what Christ actually came to do for us. There is no rest for those who are working so hard to earn God's favor when it's freely given. I mean, it is like a man who works 14, 16 hours a day to pay off a mortgage that he doesn't owe. You know, willing to neglect maybe his wife and children to pay off a debt that he doesn't owe. And he gets the phone call and says, honey, you're going to come home. It's our daughter's dance recital tonight. Ah, I got to work the extra, got to take those extra shifts to pay the bills. And she says, but we have no bills. They're paid for. Or when he calls home and says, I got to work late tonight. Someone's got to pay the mortgage. And his wife says, but the mortgage is paid for. And yet you're still working on a debt that's been paid for. And that's what it's like when we, we, we work so hard to earn God's favor, when it's actually already been paid for. There is no rest for those who try to earn God's favor when it's been given freely. Religious activity does not bring about genuine love and relationship with God. And so Isaiah says, listen, blow the trumpets because what they are doing is not what I have been seeking. And grace motivates us to love and to serve one another. And I'm not saying get rid of you know, good activities, but it's the motivation is completely different when we've experienced grace. We're motivated by the fact that our debt has been paid. We're motivated by the fact that Christ has done it for me. I'm not trying to earn it. I'm doing it because he's, what he's done for me. We know religious activities do not make grace visible. And these people in this text, people in this text wanted to put God in a place where he owed them. Hey, look at God, look what I'm doing. And yet you're not answering. Lord, I'm fasting and you don't seem to be answering. You're not doing what I want you to do. See, it's not God what they wanted. It was something else, but they try to use him to get what they wanted. And too many people think that's what Christianity is all about, a list of do's. Is it no wonder a generation who grew up in the church have walked away? The once church. They either discovered that they were terrible at doing all that church stuff, and so they just walked away. Or they discovered that they were excellent at doing that church stuff, and they discovered that left them empty as well. The fact is, grace cannot be earned, and those who could not keep up with the checklist of things say, it isn't working for me, and they leave. Then there's those good people. I mean, you've met them, the good, good people. You know, the people that never cried in their crib at night. You know, the one that never had to be taught, yes, dad, yes, mom. They just, just naturally were good. You know, they're the type that in school never caused a problem in school. 
always respectful to their teachers, went off to college, never got in trouble. They just were good. You, you know those kind of people. They're just good people. But there's a danger there that our self-righteousness can earn God's favor. But in reality, our self-righteousness also leaves us bankrupt. You know, self-righteous people easily can say, oh, I wish you were a little more like me. We looked at that quote last week by uh, Jean Leroux. If the biggest sinner we know is not us, then we don't know ourselves very well. Oswald, Oswald Chambers said, I will never despair of a man when I rightly discern what lies inside of me apart from the grace of God. So grace does not produce a frenzy religious activity to get God's approval at all. In fact, let's look at verse four. It says, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. I find that quite amazing. Here are these people who are trying to set time aside for God. They said they're fasting. They made all this preparation to fast and to spend time with God and it breaks out in fights. I think it's what they call hangry. You know, where hunger from fasting and anger collide and people do insane things. That's what's taking place here. In fact, apparently when you read it, it literally breaks out in a fight, punching each other in the face as they're preparing to spend time with God. I believe when, when grace is present... When grace walks into a room, there is a calming presence to it. Verse five. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? It is only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day that is acceptable to the Lord? You know, read through that. And I realized that actually grace is made visible in humility. See, a pursuit of the Lord marks us with a lowly posture before the Lord that says, you're worthy and I'm not. In fact, in Philippians 2, Philippians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 5 and 8, it says, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient until the until death of a cross. If we are a Christian, if we are committed to Christ, that is our future. Because the more that we mature in our faith, the more humility that we walk in. It leads us to obedience, which ultimately actually gives us life. See, Christianity does not leave any room for swagger. Look at me. It leaves no room for cockiness at all. It leaves no room for us to be arrogant or bragging because the people of God are marked 
by humility, a consistent confession of inadequacy. We don't actually pull our own boots up. It's because of the grace of God. That is our story. And the longer that we walk with Christ, the more mature we should be in our humility. I can tell you for a fact, the older I get, the more I realize how much I don't know. Like, you, if you had have seen me when I graduated from Bible college, whoo, I knew it all. T- bring on anything, I could answer. Black and white, yes or no. And then you have a few life experiences, and all of a sudden you realize, hmm, maybe I should be a little more humble. Pastor Dave and I were joking about that on Friday, but how that's sometimes the danger of, you know, Bible college. We get all this knowledge in our head at an early age, and, and, and we know it all. And then we do have those life experiences, and all of a sudden we realize, well, it forces us, actually, to be humble. Psalms 25, verse 9 says, He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his ways. See, the greatest obstacle uh, to the fullness of life is actually our pride. It takes humility to say, I'm going to do what God says. I'm going to trust God and his word. See, every one of our disobediences is tied to with the idea that I'm, that I'm smarter than God. Because sometimes obedience is like an attack on our dreams. I mean, if God knew what I was really going through, he wouldn't have written it that way. Or sometimes we'll read it, we put an asterisk, we think, well, that can't be really meant for me. The thing is, down deep on our side, we're a follower of Christ. We know that when God speaks on certain subjects and matters, it's truth. We know them better because when we go our own way, all the evidence is stacked against us. To experience the fullness and joy of life of God requires obedience. So grace is made visible when God's people walk in humility. Look at verse six. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? How is grace made visible? Grace is made visible when the people of God are moved to action for the overwhelmed, the oppressed, the enslaved. When we really understand that's actually where we came from, that it was God who set our feet on a firm foundation. We didn't crawl up there on ourselves. That was God. And it was his grace that was lavished on us so we can extend it to others. Our eyes drift to the oppressed, the enslaved, the overwhelmed when we follow Christ. Because when we were helpless, we were helped by Christ. So grace is made visible when when God's people walk in humility. Grace is made visible when God's people are moved to action for the overwhelmed, the oppressed, the enslaved. And history is filled of all kinds of examples of God's people working together to overthrow injustice. Look at verse seven. 
Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Grace is made visible when the people of God die to themselves. It's a great paradox. In fact, it mentions in Matthew, when you give up your life, you'll actually find it, which seems so odd. But you want the fullness of life in Christ? Then serve others. Life is, life is found in, in losing your own life. And the reverse is true. When you hang on to it, you lose it. So following Christ, well, it does. It does involve sacrifice because we're told to pick up our cross and follow him. And everyone, or anyone, everyone who's actually made a decision to follow Christ has laid down somewhere along the line their own desires for greater desires. Somewhere along the line we have laid down our treasures for greater treasure in following Christ. This is grace made visible for people to see. Laying down my life for someone else. I mean, what if we actually said to people, you know what, no, 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 don't, don't worry about me. How are you doing? Like, how are you doing? It's such a cultural shift. Everything changes when we die to ourselves. Because all of a sudden, you don't take everything so personal. You are not so easily offended. Full life is found in dying to ourselves. So grace is made visible when we walk humbly, the people of God. Grace is made visible when we're moved to action for those who are oppressed and overwhelmed and enslaved. And grace is made visible when the people of God actually die to themselves. Grace is made visible, actually, when the people of God just live with open hands. God, I'm here. Use me. So how do I reflect the beauty of God? How do I show that grace is more than a definition, but that it's something down deep in my soul and my gut? Well, we live open-handedly. There's nothing more exhausting than the frenzy religious activity without understanding grace. See, Jesus came and said, I've come to give you grace. I will forgive you of your sin. And yet sometimes we say, oh, no, I'll find another way. I mean, it would be like if, if, you, if you came to me and you said, I'm so thirsty, and I have a cup of cold water for you. And there's a well behind me. And I said, take it. And you're like, mm, I don't know. I said, no, it's cold. It's refreshing. It's everything you ever needed. And I can keep refilling it because I have a well right behind me. And, and then someone say, no, I'll, I think I'll go find my own. That's what it's like when people are trying to earn God's faith. Like it's been offered to them. It's right there. And they go, no, I think I can find my own. And they walk away. Look at verse 8. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. I think when we make grace visible in our life, I think what happens, it reflects the beauty of Christ that we have been transformed by the grace of God. Light. Grace-saturated life, by the way, also has, look at what it says here. 
Then your light, so when it talks about how we should live, and it says your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. What does that mean? Your healing will quickly appear. Because we, we, we know people who don't get healed. And we pray for it and they're in the hospital and we, we hope they'll come back home and, and some don't. I mean, we saw that just recently in one, that, one of those little boys that we love, Lucian. So what does he mean here? when your healing will quickly appear. I think, I think what, what he's trying to say, all of us <laughs> have some deep, dark wounds in our life. Some of the deep, deepest and darkest wounds. And I think God comes and he heals those. Those things that are deep down, that are part of our soul. And then it goes on to say, then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Of course, that's not our righteousness. It's not talking about our personal righteousness. But God's righteousness goes before us and it goes behind us. We're surrounded by the grace of God. And I just want to wrap up with this. Look at verse nine. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. I wish I could promise to you that a grace-filled life is an easy life, but it isn't. I wish I could say when you cry out for prosperity, it would happen. I wish I could say every time you cried out for healing, physical healing, that would happen, but I, I, I can't say that. But what I can say from what the Bible says here that regardless of your life circumstances, when you cry out to him, he, you will hear the words, here am I. When your marriage seems to be crumbling and falling apart, and you cry out to him, you can be guaranteed as a here am I. When, when you feel like you're, you, you, the prosperity that you needed to pay your bills is not happening, and you cry out, he's you'll hear those words, here am I. When you have been given that diagnosis from the doctors that is so devastating, this is what it's saying. When you cry out to the Lord, he'll say, here am I. His presence is with you. See, those who live saturated lives with grace know that he is enough. See, God sends a storm when we need a storm, but he also will hold you fast in the storm. That's all about, here am I. Here am I. What drives a Christian to action is a heart that has been transformed by what Christ has said about us, that we're loved, we're forgiven, that he delights in us. Oh, that we would just slow down a little bit. Now, some of you, I know, some of you here this morning, you're exhausted trying to earn God's favor. You're working, you're working. And I want to say, what are you working for? Because the debt has been paid by what Jesus has done for us. And so what breaks my heart is watching those who just keep working hard, working hard, Still caught up in that 
religious activity thinking that is what God's looking for for me to earn his favor. I'm not saying Christian activity doesn't matter, but it is birthed out of what God said we are. We do it because of what he's done for us, not because we're trying to earn something from him. It goes back to those words, but God. But God, in his great love and mercy, has extended grace towards us. Can I encourage you, can I challenge you to make grace visible for people to see? Can I challenge us as a church that in Sarnia we will make grace visible? Because we're willing to walk in humility. Because we're, we're moved to action when we see those who are overwhelmed and hurting and depressed and enslaved. That will make grace visible because we're willing to die to self to serve others. You know, we've talked about here, our mission statement is, you know, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. I believe one of the ways that we can help connect people to Jesus is when we actually make grace visible for people to see. That what, how God's grace has literally transformed our lives. We are not the same that we once were until we entered into this relationship with Jesus. What a movement of God it would be if Temple Baptist Church was characterized by making the grace of God visible for people to see. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning, uh, thank you for our time together, and I know we've gone a, a little longer than we normally do. God, I want to be the first one that says, I want my life to shine light under the beauty of Christ. God, I... I can honestly say I, I want my life to make grace visible. I want to walk humbly. I want to have eyes for those who are hurting around me. God, help me to learn how to die to myself so the grace of God can be made known. And God, I pray for that for us as a church, as a church family that when we leave here this morning that we'll begin to think yeah how can I make grace visible to my neighbors how can I make grace visible to my co-workers how can I make grace visible to my classmates to my colleagues to my family to my friends God I I think your word tells us if we would just walk humbly before you and open our eyes to see the needs of people and to die to ourselves, we'll begin to know, really know the fullness of life in Christ. Thank you, God.